Turkey is a NATO ally that claims also to be on the same side as the United States in the international fight against terrorism. Has Turkey, under President Erdogan, become nevertheless what is known as a permissive jurisdiction for illicit and terror finance? A lawsuit leading to that conclusion has now been filed against a bank, partly owned by the Turkish government, on behalf of an American victim of terrorism and members of his family. I'm Cliff May. Joining me is Jonathan Misner, an attorney representing the plaintiffs, in his first interview about this case. John is managing partner of Stein, Mitchell, Beto, and Misner LLP, and chair of the firm's global practices and corporate strategy groups. He's also an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. Also with us are Icon Erdemir, a former member of the Turkish Parliament, now a senior fellow at FDD, and Jonathan Shanzer, FDD's Senior Vice President for Research. They'll talk about where Turkey is heading and what it means for the United States and the always volatile Middle East. We're pleased that you're joining us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. A lawsuit has been filed. It's been filed for an act of terrorism. Um, and it's been filed against a bank. Um, I, I've generally found bankers to be... Well, certainly not violent types. What's the story here? Well, uh, the story is simply that bankers in recent years have been held accountable for processing funds on behalf of terrorist organizations. And in this case, you have a plaintiff that alleges that a bank is responsible for moving money uh, on behalf of Hamas. And that bank happens to be based in Turkey. And Turkey happens to be a very permissive jurisdiction for Hamas, something that we've been watching for the last seven or eight years. And what's the name of this bank and who owns this bank? This is called Kuwait Turk Bank. This is a joint venture uh, with the Kuwaitis and also owned, I think, roughly 20 percent by the Turkish uh, or by a Turkish government entity. A suit is being filed um, against this bank, which is owned by Kuwaitis and by Turks, essentially is the implication that the Turks and the Kuwaitis are supporting acts of terrorism and terrorist groups. Look, I, I'm not sure I could get into specifically the governments themselves, but I will say we do make it clear in our suit that Turkey has provided cover for and actively supported Hamas, that Hamas's Istanbul office is responsible and was responsible in October 2015 for terror attacks in the West Bank that you've written about. Turkey's government is supporting Hamas, and Hamas is using Turkey's financial system to move the money it needs to fund its attacks. This is the first of its kind suit against a Turkish bank. And uh, yeah. Describe the terrorist attack we're talking about. What, what happened? Our clients are, are the Hankins. It was a well-publicized murder. The Hankin family 
were the victims of a brutal terrorist attack widely reported on in Israel and beyond. On October 1st, 2015, Atom Hankin, the father, a U.S. citizen, was driving his wife Nama and his four children in the West Bank south of Nablus. Um, three terrorists from a Hamas cell overtook them in another car, fired an automatic gun at the Hankins' car, wounding Atom, forcing him to pull over. Two terrorists then approached the car and attempted a kidnapping. Um, Atom fought back and was killed in front of his children. Uh, Nama fought back and was also shot dead. The actual details are so gruesome. Um, the four children watched the entire attack from the backseat of the car. Um, the terrorists left the scene and attempted to hide. By the way, one terrorist ended up shooting another one in the arm. It's a whole crazy... Um, uh, but they were eventually apprehended with many... And also co-conspirators were apprehended. And... Um, uh, Hamas claimed full responsibility for the attack, praised the terrorists, who uh, unrepentantly also claimed that they were members of Hamas. By the way, we also have uh, filed suit um, this uh, year uh, against Iran and Syria for these same murders. Mm. I-, I come to the Turkish government under President Erdogan. He came for the U.N. General Assembly session. Um, among the things he talked about was terrorism and that the U.S. should not be supporting terrorist groups against uh, uh, Turkey, uh, particularly had in mind Kurdish terrorist groups, but others as well, and in, including uh, uh, a group that's based here in the U.S. that he accuses of being a terrorist group. So he's saying we're against terrorism, we Turkey, a member of NATO. He knows about what John was just talking about. But in your view, do you know, does he support the idea of helping, facilitating a group like Hamas to murder Israelis in the way that was just described? I think Erdogan has been always very open about his support to Hamas. Uh, Hamas officials at the highest levels attended uh, Turkish government functions, uh, Erdogan's party, the AKP's uh, events openly. And uh, when, um, you know, Israel had a prisoner exchange agreement uh, with Hamas, you know, 10 of the Hamas militants in the leadership circle ended up in Turkey. When uh, Hamas militants need medical care, they come to Turkey. So uh, under Erdogan's rule, uh, the Turkish government uh, has been quite proud and open about its support to Hamas, uh, both rhetorically and also in terms of material help. John Chancellor. Look, I I think it's also important to note that this is part of a broader strategy that Erdogan has pursued since the so-called Arab Spring 2010-2011 of trying to promote the Muslim Brotherhood uh, around the Middle East. So he supported the Morsi government, he supported the Nahda movement in Tunisia and in a bunch of other countries where the Brotherhood was resurgent. Uh, He views Hamas as very much a part of that. Uh, They're, of course, a, a government as well as a terrorist organization based in Gaza, he continues to try to legitimize the movement uh, and to promote them on the world stage as part of his broader strategy of being kind of the father of the Muslim Brotherhood around the Middle East. This was, of course, a strategy that he tried and failed to promote under the Barack Obama presidency. Uh, At one point, uh, I think the Obama administration saw this as a viable strategy. It's since unraveled, but he has not given up on it. He continues to push the Brotherhood uh, as an alternative to leadership in the Middle East. And, and while we're talking about the Brotherhood, we should say, and this is controversial, there are those who say the, the Brotherhood is um, a, a terrorist organization and should be so designated in all its various chapters. There are those who argue, no, no, it, it varies greatly. There are some Brotherhood chapters who 
are against violence. They very much, they do, they are Islamists. They believe in the imperative of Islamic supremacy, but they don't believe in terrorism and violence. In a way, what Erdogan is doing, it's, it, it would seem to me, is saying, I don't really care one way or another. I support the Brotherhood. I support it whether it's violent or whether it's not. I support terrorism. I support Islamists much more generally than that. It's hard to interpret his actions any other way, isn't it? I think that's right. He uh, believes in the sort of concept of political Islam and doesn't differentiate between uh, between Hamas and some of the more political movements. He sees them as legitimate uh, resistance organizations, as he would call it, um, and has thrown his weight behind an organization that's been designated in the United States for terrorism. And, and this is something we haven't come to terms with, but let's put it on the table. When we talk about Turkey, we are talking about a NATO member, therefore officially, not just a strategic partner, which is the word Erdogan likes to use, but we're actually talking about an American ally, and not just a NATO partner, but the NATO partner with the second biggest military within that organization. The first biggest is the U.S. The second biggest is not Germany. It's not France. It's not England. It's Turkey. So we have right now a NATO member, a major NATO member, that is a supporter of terrorism, Islam, political Islam, or Islamism and the mother Muslim Brotherhood. People don't talk about that much, and I think it's partly because, what do you say? We also see some other worrying developments about Turkey, too. You know, democratic backsliding, Turkey being the worst jailer of journalists in the world mm -hmm. three years in a row. But at the same time, the same Turkey is a very permissive environment when it comes to Muslim Brotherhood incitement, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood incitement from Istanbul. Mm. You know, Turkish journalists themselves have no space for dissent, whereas Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood TV stations in Istanbul have been re recorded uh, to incite violence against not only Egyptian officials, but also Western nationals and companies based in mm. Egypt. So there, there seems to be double standards when the Turkish government, you know, treats Muslim Brotherhood types versus its own citizens and nefarious actors around the world versus its NATO allies. And I can, you and John wrote an op-ed in the New York Post, which talked about, John yeah. Misner, about this, this lawsuit. Yep. Uh, maybe you want to just describe what you alleged, what you charged, what you claimed in this piece, because uh, this has come to Erdogan's attention, as we will subsequently discuss, and he, he was fairly angry about about this piece. But it's an, but it's an important piece that, that, that you've written, getting things on the record that have not been on the record before. Yeah, uh, our piece um, was about the lawsuit um, and the fact that there was a lawsuit being filed against uh, a bank in Turkey uh, and the importance of that given that Hamas has found Turkey to be such an, uh, an important jurisdiction for them to operate outside of Gaza. Um, but we also broadened the aperture a bit to talk about the fact that uh, uh, Turkey has helped Iran evade sanctions, that it has helped Venezuela evade sanctions, that it has abetted uh, Syrian money launderers, that it has abetted ISIS and al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. In other words, what we did in this piece is we explained how Turkey – a NATO member it has evolved into something that looks very much um, like a state sponsor of terrorism. And, um, and I think this lawsuit is really helping uh, to kind of put a focus on that uh, for the first time. And don't forget, your piece also discussed the recent actions of OFAC, our own U.S. government, and what they did when it came to Turkey. And just explain what OFAC is and what they affected. So OFAC is um, the... Uh, 
part of the secretary of the uh, Department of Treasury that uh, Office of Foreign, Office of Assets, Foreign Assets Control, Control but yeah, yeah. that uh, it takes a look at people, companies, corporations all over the world that are uh, engaging in illicit uh, transactions, illicit uh, money activities, uh, and they sanction them. They sanction the people. They sanction the money. Um, didn't you used to work for them? I did. I yeah, did. So. <laughs> so what that means is that the U.S. government has has taken this view based on evidence accumulated. They can't just do it because one day it came into their head, oh, we don't like these guys. Let's designate them. Designations require evidence. Correct. Right? Uh, correct. These are uh, called designation packages. They have a very strict legal procedure in order to get through the U.S. government. And uh, what John's referring to uh, are 11 individuals that were just recently sanctioned by the United States government for uh, operating on behalf of Hamas, but also Hezbollah and ISIS um, that were based in Turkey. Uh, so in other words, the Treasury Department is beginning to point to Turkey, uh, maybe not um, making accusations uh, directly, but these are shots across the bow right. uh, at, at Ankara. And Ankara is going to, at some point, need to explain why all this activity is taking place on its soil. And, and ju- look, I, I think most people listening to this particular podcast know that Hamas is a, is, is a terrorist organization. But for those who don't, this is not something, again, that's been cooked up by this administration or that you're charging. This has been established, again, according to basic evidence that Hamas actively um, uses violence against non-combatants for political purposes and has for and forever. Correct. Uh, I mean, this is an organization that was founded in 1988 uh, and immediately began to use violence. It was actually a splinter of the Muslim Brotherhood that uh, elected the uh, the pursuit of violence against Israel during the first intifada. It was subsequently designated as a foreign terrorist organization by the State Department and also um, a terrorist organization by the Treasury. So uh, this is something that is recognized across the U.S. bureaucracy. And in fact, it's also recognized as a terrorist organization by a lot of other countries uh, around the world. So um, the fact that Turkey is allowing this is um, somehow it's difficult to fathom on, on, on a certain level. But then once you understand who Erdogan is and what's happened in Turkey under his rule, perhaps it makes a little bit more sense. Also important to establish because uh, I've been challenged on this on Twitter and others, Hamas is not using violence in order to uh, establish a better negotiating position for itself vis-a-vis Israel in order that they can eventually uh, arrange a two-state solution in which there would be peaceful coexistence. Um, it, the fact of the matter is Hamas is very open, very explicit uh, that it wants Israel absolutely erased from the map and will accept nothing less and doesn't want to negotiate about that. Maybe it would take a truce at a time when it's getting beat up. It can, that, that's allowed, but only so that it can regather its strength and again fight Israel. Yeah, when your enemy's minimum standards is your complete destruction. Uh, and that's their minimum. That's, minimum. that's their starting point. Turkey was seen to be, obviously, uh, it was not a Muslim country. It was a Muslim majority country because you had minorities and they had rights. And it was secular because Kamal Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey, of the Turkish Republic, said it did not want Islamism, did not want a country ruled under a theocracy. That's exactly what he was pushing against following the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the last sultan and the last caliph, which was, who was in Istanbul, Constantinople. People may not remember that. 
that. And trade with Israel uh, was was bountiful. Actually, it probably st- trade still is, isn't it? it it's still there. <laughs> Meaning that's that's Erdogan's compartmentalization. On the one hand, he will do anything uh, in his power to delegitimize Israel. He will, uh, you know, harbor terrorists and other radical Islamist groups. But at the same time. He looks for lucrative business opportunities with Israel. So uh, while at the you know UN General Assembly, he's you know blasting against Israel. You know, a few hours earlier, he was meeting with you know American Jewish leaders. Has always this kind of double talk and you know hypocrisy built into his rhetoric. And while we're talking about that, and before we get off and move on from the uh, op-ed you guys had in the, in the New York Post, Rhett Baer at the Fox News Channel did an interview with Erdogan. Very good interview, very tough interview. I thought he did a very good job. And specifically mentioned your piece and challenged him on that. And, and we'll just take a second and listen to a, a brief excerpt from that. Excellent. There are charges that your country is helping all of these countries avoid sanctions. Uh, The New York Post had an analysis in which it said, under President Erdogan, Turkey has become a permissive jurisdiction for rogue regimes and their illicit bankers. It goes on to say that Tehran relies on Turkish banks and dual Iranian Turkish gold traders, uh, calling it the biggest sanctions evasion scheme in recent history. It says in Venezuela, the Maduro regime is using Turkish-based companies and a money laundering network to get Iran around sanctions, and that the Assad regime in Syria owns an extensive network of companies in Turkey, enabling Syria to circumvent U.S. sanctions. Do you know that to be happening, and is it happening with your consent? These are the allegations voiced by a terrorist organization known as FETL, who were behind the failed coup of July 2016 in Turkey. So not true? No, no. These allegations are more than wrong. These are all produced propaganda by the FETL terrorist organization. Our banks have full compliance with global banking regulations, and the banking transactions have always been conducted within the framework of internationally recognized principles. I don't know who authored that article, but I think this is very cheap, and I won't let anyone just defame my banking sector and my banks this way. Mr. President, earlier this month, the Trump administration did sanction a Turkish-based senior Hamas official who runs that terror group's uh, budget, and other financial institutions based in Turkey have been sanctioned for terror financing by the U.S. government, not just an article or analysis. So the question is, are you helping the U.S. crack down on terror financing in your country? If there are some individuals or institutions violating international regulations, they will be subject to certain international treaties and conventions that can be invoked. And if we receive complaints, we will do whatever is necessary, whether it be crackdown, whether it be incarceration, whether it be seizure of assets. We've always cooperated, and we will always cooperate with international authorities. These actions have been very significantly taken, and we expect the same thing from our allies. Terrorist organizations such as Fatal and PPK are roaming freely in the West. I wonder what is the United States doing about these terrorist organizations? Are they extraditing these terrorists to us? No. For example, here, the Kurdish YPG terrorist organization extensions are present. We want them to be extradited to Turkey, and the leader of Fatal is currently living in Pennsylvania, living on a land of 400 acres, and he is running his global network quite freely from Pennsylvania. Okay, based on that, anything you, you want to add, anything you want to comment in terms of uh, Erdogan's uh, uh, response and his answer? 
Yeah, look, I would say that it is sort of a classic Erdogan response that, A, he denies that he's engaged in any illicit financial activity or that his government is. And and this is something that he's denied even as evidence has been accumulated uh, against his government by the Department of Justice or by the Department of Treasury. He continues to deflect. But also uh, his response is telling in that he blames all of this uh, on what he calls FETO. FETO. This is the Which is FETO. not a cheese. No. Uh, uh, this is uh, Fethullah Gulen. Uh, he is a cleric who's um, sought asylum here in the United States. He's based in the Poconos. And Erdogan blames him for a failed coup from 2016. And so anytime we talk about uh, Turkey's terrorism support, this is the official Turkish government response is that these are talking points from a terrorist organization that tried to overthrow the government. And is there any evidence that Gulen's organization based in the Poconos is in fact a terrorist organization and is in fact or was in fact responsible for the failed coup of a few years back? I think there's enough evidence to show that uh, military officers as well as some civilian bureaucrats linked to the Gulen movement were the backbone of the failed coup attempt in 2016. But it's very important to emphasize that we're talking about a group that happened to be Erdogan's closest ally from 2002 to 2013. So basically, I argue that this is all a fight within the Islamist mm. uh, you know, spectrum in Turkey. And suddenly Erdogan is now turning against and his former ally is turning against Erdogan. So we have uh, these two you know, uh, very close allies basically fighting now a, a global war. Which Erdogan, of course, uses now as as a, a pretext to delegitimize any op- any opposition and any criticism of his government, including all these allegations uh, of illicit finance and sanctions evasion, which he, in the interview, referred to as you know terrorist fabrications. And I can maybe speak for a minute about how you've been personally drawn in to this conflict. So I think I'm a typical example of how Erdogan functions, you know, as part of Turkey's, you know, pro-secular opposition. I have opposed uh, not only Erdogan, but also Gulen uh, throughout these, you know, uh, 12 years of their alliance. Uh, And when uh, they had a fallout, uh, Erdogan not only went after uh, his former Gulenist allies, but also Turkey's uh, pro-secular opposition. And uh, every time we, uh, you know, raise these legitimate criticism uh, of his uh, of his actions, uh, he would turn to us uh, and, you know, smear us as terrorists, as members of the Gulen movement. So you've been accused of being a Gulenist. Of course. Actually, and you've never been to the Poconos. I've never been to the Poconos. I've never met the guy. Uh, And it's not only me. Uh, So now the entire FTD is uh, basically accused by Erdogan of uh, being Gulenist. And also uh, all the sanctions evasion uh, expose that FTD has done Mm. is now blamed as a Gulenist tactic. And I think what Erdogan is missing and what in the Fox interview really came out is that a lot of these designations are actually by the U.S. Treasury. So what Mm. he blames as terrorists' acts are actually U.S. Treasury's designations based on concrete, substantial evidence. So I wouldn't be surprised, given how crazy things are in Turkey, that Erdogan could start attacking now the U.S. Treasury and OFAC as also a terrorist entity. Under Erdogan, Turkey has also been helping the Islam, and you've reported on this, John, has been helping the Islamic Republic of Iran evade sanctions. We also believe that Qatar perhaps 
with whom Turkey and Erdogan have very close relations and is also a supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood, that Qatar is helping finance out of their oil and gas proceeds uh, the Tur- keep the Turkish government uh, and economy afloat. The economy has not been in great shape. These are these are odd alliances in a certain way for Turkey to have. I think particularly the alliance uh, with the Islamic Republic of Iran, which has regional ambitions and tends to be the hegemon of the Middle East. And from what I can tell, Erdogan intends to be the hegemon of the Middle East. He's a neo-Sultan, a neo-Ottoman. He wants to reestablish Turkish dominance in the Middle East and the Muslim world. And his his biggest rival, it seems to me, is Tehran. Look, it should be. um, But I do think that we have seen Islamists of different stripes join in common cause. Um, that, uh, you know, f- just for example, when the Muslim Brotherhood uh, was resurgent during the Arab Spring, uh, the Iranians uh, absolutely uh, did outreach. Uh, and in fact, Mohammed Morsi's first meeting, I believe, was with the Iranian president at the time uh, of the Egyptian revolution there. So um, we see these sorts of connections often. Um, but the, the one that we focused on here was the so-called gas for gold scheme, uh, where FDD played a major role in helping the Department of Justice um, sort of unpack a scheme that took place between 2012 and 2015, right at the height of the um, the nuclear standoff, uh, as Iran was uh, trying to go uh, or to advance its nuclear program, and we were imposing sanctions. The Turks helped Iran move roughly $20 billion in uh, cash and gold to help Iran evade sanctions. So this was directly undermining American policy. And ultimately, the Department of Justice arrested um, uh, the the key figure who was involved in this, and he actually flipped and turned state's evidence. And then uh, after that, they arrested a banker who was put in jail here in the United States and was released uh, just very recently back to Turkey. But uh, Hulk Bank, mm-hmm. uh, one of the largest lenders in Turkey, was the bank at the heart of this. And again, I think that's why this is so interesting to see this new lawsuit. This is now yet another bank. This is Kuwait Turk Bank, not Hulk Bank mm-hmm. now, that's implicated in an illicit financial scheme. And it's also important to remember that uh, during the sanctions evasion period, there were at least four Turkish ministers on the payroll of this Iranian uh, ringleader which shows that, yes, there are sectarian tensions between Iran and Turkey, you know, Iran being Shia and Turkey being Sunni. But at the same time, you know, uh, political Islam brings them together as mm. well as self-interest. So it's important to realize how much inroads Iran has made in Turkey through its intel, uh, through its crony network, uh, through the Turkish officials and bureaucrats on Iran's payroll. So this is, I think, one story which still needs uh, more examination and uh, goes often unnoticed. By the way, John, Mr., the lawsuit you're bringing, this is not the first time Kuvet Turk Bank has uh, been the, the subject of a complaint. Back in 2016, um, St. Francis of Assisi, a non-profit organization here, not St. Francis himself, um, filed a complaint against the bank uh, and its parent company, the Kuwait Finance House, for allegedly processing donations to the Islamic State, mm-hmm. this terrorist group that took over parts of uh, of Iraq and, and, and Syria, the Islamic State. Now, a federal judge dismissed that case, but not because it was found to have no merit. It was just that uh, no U.S. person had been harmed. Yeah, so it was procedural. Was proceed, yeah. Purely procedural. Yeah. So it's possible. Even, they didn't even get to the question.
Yeah. They, in, in civil litigation, you have to get through certain stages of the case. And in this case, uh, I believe it was not a U.S. person. And there were some other reasons. So for, you know, when they when they say on, you know, TV shows you watch, it was dismissed because of a technicality. Yeah, this was a that's they, what didn't, they, they didn't get over that. We're not going to have that problem. Maybe, uh, John, no. explain how this case that you filed is potentially different. Yeah. Look, uh, let me spend a minute describing uh, this case. In the U.S., um, there are civil remedies, another tool against terror. There are civil remedies to any nationally United States injured because of an act of international terrorism uh, under something called the Anti-Terrorism Act, and there's some other uh, explanations I can go through. But in, in 2016, um, a new law, as you guys know well, JASTA, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, um, which uh, passed over President Obama's veto, uh, it's very relevant to our case because JASTA amended the Anti-Terrorism Act that I just described to include liability for aiding and abetting foreign terrorist organizations. And certainly, um, uh, aiding and abetting, it, by the way, there's many definitions, things like knowingly providing substantial assistance. And in our case, um, we allege that Bank Kuwait um, did many things that uh, add up to uh, aiding and abetting. I'll throw out a few because there are many of the organizations that I'm going to describe you've written about prolifically over the years and a great help to us in, in this lawsuit, by the way, all of your amazing research um, here at FDD. But look, uh, Bank Kuwait maintained an account for Jihad Yagamor, a well-known member of Hamas, who is the liaison between Hamas and the Turkish government. Bank Kuwait maintained an account for an organization called IHH, which is Hamas's most prominent non-governmental source of fundraising in Turkey. Bank Kuwait maintained an account and provided financial services to the Islamic University of Gaza, which is largely run by Hamas members and is a principal source of recruitment uh, for Hamas. And so... What we need to do in this lawsuit is we need to show that Bank Kuwait, and we believe we will, knew or was deliberately indifferent to the fact that it was supporting terrorist activities uh, or terrorists by hosting these accounts and sending money on behalf of the account holders to various recipients that are affiliated with Hamas. And just to be clear, why won't this one be thrown out on that same technicality as the lawsuit against ISIS? Rabbi Hankins, a U.S. citizen. So there's, so there's clearly standing. It's interesting, when we think of counterterrorism, I certainly think of, uh, of intelligence agencies, I think of special forces, I think of maybe combat aircraft coming in, I think of... I th but the, the, the idea of using the courts to fight terrorism and fight terrorism financiers backing, you see this as a, as a useful weapon in this uh, arsenal. Well, it's already proven. It's already been successful. You've, you know, the book came out of this shop called Lawfare. I mean, there are, yeah. th this, is, this is a tool, I will say, specific to terror. First of all, Congress has already answered that question by providing U.S. terror victims and their families civil causes of actions in our action in our courts. So the most representative political branch has already decided that the courts are an appropriate, the U.S. courts are an appropriate place for U.S. terror victims to seek justice for the harm caused by terrorists and those who aid and abet terrorists. And this makes perfect sense because any defendant who causes harm should expect that they may be hauled into U.S. courts to compensate the victim of that harm. This is no different with banks like Bank Kuwait, 
who knew or were deliberately indifferent to its role in supporting Hamas, a terrorist organization. And look, courts provide a, a, a huge amount of protections to defendants like Bank Kuwait, notice, an opportunity to be heard, the federal rules of civil procedure, uh, the rules of evidence. And so they will have their opportunity to vigorously defend, and we will vigorously pursue. Jen, there's one more case I wanted to bring in here because you work on it a lot. There was a Hamas commander based in Turkey, with Turkish knowledge, who orchestrated the murder of three Israelis uh, in the West Bank. Uh, there's a whole TV show about this now. People may be watching on Netflix called Our Boys. I'm not going to discuss the, the, the show here, but people may be watching it, and this is an important thing because what happened here, I think one can say, is he orchestrated the killing of these three boys. Some Israelis who were militant and radical killed uh, killed a Palestinian. You and I actually were in the uh, in East Jerusalem for the funeral uh, reporting on that. Uh, the result of those two uh, examples of murder was a war in 2014 in the summer, Israel versus Hamas in Gaza, an all-out war. You and I also were running to fallout shelters because there were missiles coming in as we were trying to just have drinks on a rooftop, if you remember, and then at the university. So if, in other words, Turkey and Erdogan are, are, are actually responsible for wars between Palestinians and Israelis, at least in this one case. Look, in, in this one case, I think it, it's absolutely true that Turkey gave shelter um, and support to uh, a man by the name of Saleh Arori. Uh, Arori is the commander of the so-called Kassam Brigades, the militant wing, as if there's the peaceful wing of Hamas, right. but they call it their, their armed wing of Hamas. He's their West Bank commander. Uh, and he arrived in Turkey, I believe it was either 2010 or 2011, and he was based there for many years. And he was fundraising. He was engaging in political activity and apparently also was involved in planning this operation uh, against these three teens that were killed uh, in the summer of 2014. Now, we know this because at the end of that war, it was a 51 day conflict where thousands of rockets were fired into Israel and Israel responded against Hamas and Gaza. When it was all over, uh, Arori got up in front of a uh, large conference in Istanbul, and he announced that Hamas was responsible for that uh, attack. And he received a standing ovation. Mm. And in the audience was the deputy prime minister of Turkey. So there's no way that the Turks were not aware of his presence uh, or of his activities. Now, um, I, over the years, the U.S. government has finally taken notice of Arori. Uh, and so the Treasury Department designated him as a terrorist. Uh, and then in 2000, that was in 2015. Uh, probably right around the time that this uh, Henkin murder took place. Absolutely. Also in the West Bank. Yep. Um, so this would have been Arori's jurisdiction. Um, and then uh, in 2017, the State Department came out with a, uh, they called a rewards for justice. It's a bounty. Um, basically offering $5 million for information that would lead to the capture uh, and arrest of Salah Harori. So he's been now identified as basically an enemy of the state here in the U.S. And uh, we understand now that the Turks have kicked him out of the country mm. under pressure from the United States, but that he still visits. He doesn't live there anymore, but that he goes back and forth. And according to one report, um, he may be involved in uh, the building of new military infrastructure 
in Lebanon mm. uh, to fight alongside Hezbollah in the next conflict. And in the next conflict with Israel. With Israel yeah. and, and with the knowledge yet again of the Turkish government. And by the way, uh, just to, to John and Cliff, we um, we prominently feature Al-Arori. If anyone, by the way, wants to read the complaint, it's at our website, steinmitchell.com, and we posted it for anyone who wants to read it. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about Al-Arori and his relationship with Hamas and that it had been publicly reported that Hamas's Turkish office, while he was there, was responsible for operating the very terror cell, as you said, John, that committed this attack against the Hankins, my clients. Um, and uh, look, I'll just say that during this relevant period, um, Kuwait Bank, we believe, knowingly maintained bank accounts for and provided financial services to Hamas operatives, institutions, fundraisers, fully understanding its role in Hamas's illicit and violent activities, including the murder of the Hankins. So what may be my last question is, if you prevail in this lawsuit, what does that mean? What What is the impact on Turkey, on terrorism, on Islamism? What What, what does it mean? Look, as I said, these are very effective ways to... Um, go after the what is needed in all these murders in all these terrorist attacks is obviously money mm-hmm. and a way to get the money through and to evade sanctions and money launder and whatever you know whatever these banks do and if we are able to prevail here uh, along the way we will be entitled to significant discovery which is something mm-hmm. I can assure you Bank Kuwait has no interest in participating in, but will have no choice. And by the way, just so we're clear, Sorry. discovery means depositions, documents, things, emails, discussions between people. Um, uh, uh, and I believe those will show um, significant proof of what we are alleging. And I think that will send a shockwave uh, to other banks and others mm-hmm. who are, you know, look, Banks have been sanctioned. You know, Credit Suisse a few years ago had to pay billions of dollars and uh, and plead guilty to a felony. A bank pled guilty to a felony. And a Swiss for, bank. And a Swiss bank um, for uh, illicit activities, money laundering, things like that. Um, so it's not unheard of that a bank mm. has a significant civil action where they have to pay significant dollars. I think in this case, it will be a breakthrough situation because it is a Turkish bank. It will expose this bank for engaging in this kind of illicit aiding and abetting, understanding who they're maintaining bank accounts for and where their money is going. And we are at a, as you said at the beginning of this, you're talking about a NATO member who wants to be part of the circle of, uh, countries that are not supposed to act in this way, where there are admissions by Alarori and others um, of these things. And so, yes, I think it will have a significant impact on our work and the great work you guys are doing. I, I would probably just add that um, when one considers uh, Turkey's uh, full integration into the what we would call the formal financial sector, uh, the fact that it banks in Europe, that it banks in the United States, that corporations and, and major businesses work in Turkey. There is significant risk for having a bank like this exposed. Uh, and I think that we can't understate the impact of a lawsuit like this. And maybe, Icon, if you want to just speak for a minute about Turkey's precarious uh, economic situation and what kind of impact this might have. That's a great point. 
So we have two parallel processes going on at the same time. On the one hand, Erdogan's mismanagement and corruption, you know, Islamist economics uh, have failed miserably uh, and the Turkish economy uh, just entered recession and now there seems to be a very long and painful recovery process. We'll see how that goes. But on the other hand, uh, such designations, uh, such lawsuits against financial institutions put additional strain uh, on Turkey's already fragile uh, economic and financial system. Uh, so th uh, this could end up being uh, the perfect storm uh, where Erdogan's reckless economic management on the one hand and reckless support for illicit finance and terrorism could basically compound the effect on the Turkish economy. Look at Iranian sanctions. A choice was given to countries, to banks, to institutions. You have a choice. You could either do business with Iran or the United States. You decide. And the sanctions have been effective in many, in many cases. As you said, in an economy that's trying to have it both ways, um, to do this kind of activity through the banks, to be given a choice, look, if you continue this, this is what's going to happen. You may not be able to do business with the United States anymore. You may lose those correspondent banking relationships with New York that you rely on so much. And so obviously part of our lawsuit, besides it being on behalf of you, a U.S. citizen, uh, is that they're doing business in New York and that there is a correspondent banking relationship in New York where we filed our very lawsuit because Bank Kuwait has to appear there if they want to continue doing business in New York. Clearly, Erdogan is going to be, and I'm sure is, angry about this lawsuit. Will this lawsuit in any way constrain him? And does this lawsuit, if, it, if, if John should and his client should prevail, does it endanger his power in Turkey? Or is that, or is that, or is that not really possible? If history is any guide, Erdogan only responds to pressure uh, and clear and concrete pressure. For example, when the U.S. threatened sanctions for his involvement in Venezuelan gold trade, uh, Erdogan took a step back. Uh, you know, after evading Iran sanctions, uh, he tried to do it the second time around, and the current administration was really tough on Turkey, so he stopped importing oil from Iran. So all the times Erdogan seemed to comply came only after strong and clear U.S. pressure. But in general, we have to keep in mind, Erdogan is always looking for uh, weaknesses to exploit. He is always looking for uh, deals with rogue actors. He is always looking for ways to support uh, these illicit individuals and entities. So uh, I think that the take-home message is uh, only vigilance on the part of U.S. and its you know, NATO allies can constrain Erdogan. Well, these are fascinating and potentially consequential developments. John Mister, congratulations to you for the good work you're doing. Thank you for being with us. John Shanzer, your research and yours, Icon Erdemirs, have obviously been very useful in all this. Thanks again to all of you, and thanks to all of you out there who are listening and joining us here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. 
For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.